0: What is it that would cause you to do your happy dance? If you have children, that would certainly be there. No greater joy than this. So let me, let me go another direction. Where do you think, as far as we know, the Apostle Paul did not have children. We're not even sure that the Apostle Paul was married. There's nothing in the Scripture to suggest that he was Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. We're not sure. But what what is it, do you think, that made Paul dance his happy dance? Maybe you never even thought of Paul dancing a happy dance. What does Paul look like dude? Do you have an image of the Apostle Paul in your mind? It's not like that, so we can take that picture back away. That's that's not what Paul looked like at all. I I never mix up Paul and Snoopy. What does Paul look like to you? Maybe sort of that prophet image. Maybe there's a, a long beard, ZZ top thing going on. He's probably got, a, got scrolls or books or something. He's, he's, he's serious. He is focused. He's probably walking somewhere because he walked an awful lot. But you probably don't imagine him dancing, do you? But I think there were times... I think there were times when Paul said, yes, yes, yes. There were times when he was thrilled. There were times when he did do his happy dance. What was it? What caused it? He didn't have his own children to rejoice in necessarily, but we're going to see in the passage this morning, we're going to see what it is above all else that gave Paul his happy dance. And I want to suggest what it is above all the other things that it could be, all the other things that you might think of, all the other things that are suggested to us. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the thing for Paul is ultimately the thing for you. This will do it when nothing else does. And anything else in comparison is going to be a, a cheap imitation. So I invite you to turn then, thinking happy dance, I invite you to turn to First Thessalonians chapter 3. First Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to start off in, in verse 6, read through the rest of the chapter, and uh, well actually I might not read it all just yet, I might just read, a, read the first several verses, but um, thinking of where does Paul find his joy? What is it? What is that bound up in? Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find us on page 987. Chapter 3 and verse 6. But now, now that Timothy has come to us from you. Now I should back up then and just give a little context. Remember, of chapter 1, Paul's describing what how things have been and what he's rejoicing over at the church in Thessalonica. He only knows those things to describe those things, which were the result of his ministry, which he describes in more detail in chapter 2. So chapter 1 describes this is what it looks like when the gospel has been planted and is flourishing in the lives of others. That's chapter 1 in a, in a brief description. And chapter 2 describes for us in more detail what did it take for that to happen. What did it take to plant the gospel so that it would flourish in the lives of others? And Paul gives those parental analogies, like a, like a, a mother nur- nourishing her own children, nurturing her own children, like a faithful father um, encouraging and exhorting. And yet Paul has been concerned That the pressures, he knows the intense pressure. He knows the trouble. He knows the threat. He knows the hostility and the opposition. He knows that Satan himself has opposed him in his ministry among the Thessalonian Christians. And he knows that that hostility would continue after his departure. And he's concerned for them. He's concerned that his labor among them at great cost would be for nothing, that they would withdraw in among themselves, that they would have their own salvation, but they would keep it to themselves, that they would be intimidated into withdrawing from others around them and seek the safety of themselves instead of continuing to share what God has given them with the people around them. Well, in chapter 1, Paul finds out because of Timothy sending. Paul's concern, that's his concern, so he sends Timothy to them. And he's willing even to be left alone at cost to himself. We don't know all the, all the difficulty or the hardship that brought on, but, but we know that it was, there was a price to be paid. But he thought it good, in fact, to be left alone in order to send Timothy to them, Silas apparently to Philippi, to see how they're doing, to establish them and to encourage them in their faith. And then he knows how they're doing upon Timothy's return, and that's when he writes this letter. That's when he's able to write the things he writes in chapter 1. That's when he's able to write in in view of that report back here in verse 6 as well. Timothy has come to us from you, and he's brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. What thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul is writing now, he's describing the good news, what Timothy has brought, that Timothy brought back the, uh, the good news of their faith and their love. Now just right there, we're, we're, we're going to assume that that faith is in Christ, that faith is in God, that those things that, that Paul brought them and taught them, they are still holding fast to and believing, and, and, and it's so good to hear that. It's so good to know that, that they haven't been intimidated out of their faith. It's so good to hear of their love, and that love certainly would include their love for one another. That which evidences the reality of their being disciples of Jesus, that all men would know that they are his disciples because of their love for one another, but that love is, is, is described in a particular direction. That you have, that you always remember us kindly, that you long to see us as we long to see you. That, that love that he describes, their faith in God, in the gospel which Paul brought to them and their love and affection for Paul, certainly as well as Timothy and Silas. Part of Paul's concerns is probably this. That after his departure, there would be much murmuring and scandals and headlines and talking about this Paul of, Sarsus, of Tarsus who came into our city and who drew many away into these false teaching and, and, and heresies contrary to the law of Moses and things that are against Caesar and, and stirring up and, and, and um, running his name through the mud so that people would want to withdraw from Paul. They would create a little distance. The enemy would seek to drive a wedge between Paul and these Christians because that wedge between them and Paul, if Paul's the one that brought them the gospel, that delivered to them faith in Christ, if the enemy can weaken the bond between them, he can also weaken their hold on the faith that Paul brought to them. So there's the danger that he was concerned about, knowing that that would be going on, knowing that the pressure would be applied to them as well to abandon Paul and to abandon faith and return loyalty to synagogue and Caesar instead. And yet... You always remember us kindly. You long to see us. In the midst of that animosity and oppositional climate, they have continued to have a love and affection for Paul and for the Lord. Those who love the Lord love the Lord's people. Those who have have been brought into a relationship with God through faith in Christ have an affection for the one who dared or paid whatever cost was needed, spent the time, showed the care to bring them there. And that has continued for these Thessalonians. And Paul's thrilled about that. That our faith and love... Our faith in God are bound up in our affection for others, that we cultivate loving one another alongside of our faith in God, that our, our faith is not a solo sport. First John chapter four says, he who, "He who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God." Oh, sorry, he who does not love his brother, brother whom he has seen, cannot love God, who he's not seen. that we love God by loving our brother, loving our sister. These are bound together. That's why we connect in smaller groups. That's why we need to be engaged in the lives of one another. That's why I, I, I want you to be in some kind of smaller group where you're growing together with other growing believers. This is a place where where you know others and you'll, you're will you able to pray for them and they know you and they're able to pray for you. And you're praying for one another as you would step into these things that you're learning together. Maybe it's in one of the morning classes here, first service or second. Maybe it's in... in um, Another small group sometime during the week. But you're engaged in the lives of others. It's not a solo sport. And Paul wants that to continue. In fact, Paul's heart towards them is evidence the same. Look down in verse 10. We pray most earnestly night and day that we might see you face to face, that we might supply what is lacking in your faith. Face to face is not the same as Facebook or FaceTime. It's being there. It's being together. We're grateful for Paul's letters. But God works in person. God, in fact, came in person. And He sends us where possible in person. When you can't, follow Paul, write a note, write a letter, send a greeting, give a call, send a text. But when you can, go to others around you. Paul is referring by what is lacking in your faith, he's referring to further teaching. You have to know something to believe it, and so there's more teaching that would strengthen their faith. More faith means something, more body to that faith. If Paul's Paul's looking for ways either perhaps to broaden their faith or to deepen their faith. By broaden, I mean showing in new ways that this faith applied. I didn't know that that applied over in this direction, how I would make that choice. Seeing further ways that the truth of God, For instance, the humility of Christ and what that that teaches us about our own humility toward others. That Jesus was, was the friend of tax collectors and sinners, so we do not shut ourselves off from people whom we think might defile us. No, we would extend ourselves too to share our life with people around us who need him. Broadening our faith and the implications of it, deepening their faith. Now I really believe it. Let me give you an example of that. I still remember the time when I heard somebody explain for the first time that Ezekiel 34, where God is is confronting the self-serving shepherds of Israel and how they are fleecing the flock to serve themselves. He's talking about the leaders of Israel. And he says, he's going to cast out the false shepherds and he is going to himself be their shepherd. And then you come along to John chapter 10 in the New Testament. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And I remember when somebody put those two together and I saw it for the first time. That that the shepherd of Ezekiel 34 was the shepherd of John 10. That Jesus here is God saying, I will be their shepherd there. And he was. And I said, wow. I really, Old Testament from here all the way over to here, this book is together, this sure, this is the Word of God, and I believed it. You say, didn't you believe it before then? Yes, I did. I didn't believe it before then. I was saved at that time already. I already believed in Christ my Savior, but I believed in God's Word at a new level than I had before. That's what Paul wants for them. That's what he wants for you and I as well. Not only to broaden the implications of our faith, but, the, but to deepen our faith that comes out of continuing in his word together. This supply, in verse 10, to supply what is lacking in your faith. You think, well, gee, who's, somebody's lacking in their faith. Are you lacking in your faith? Is anybody here lacking in their faith this morning? The answer is yes. I, hear, I see a few people, willing people saying yes, but not putting hands up or anything, just yes, yes. Yes, you are. Yes, I am. We are. We are lacking in our faith. There is something that's still needed. Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 12, and he, and he talks about pastors and teachers like Ryan with his sword, who God has given as gifts to the church in order to, to supply, to equip the saints. the same word to supply or to equip the saints for the work of ministry. All of us need further equipping, further supplying. God isn't done with any of us yet. And Paul says, I am looking forward to the next time. I've been online. I've checked kayak. I'm looking for a fare because I want to get back and be with you again that I might supply what's still needed in your faith that would even more greatly and more deeply equip you in your ministry where the gospel is being sounded forth from you across the whole region and beyond. And Paul said, "May it only continue." That's what he's describing here. And yet in the middle of that, verse 6 to verse 10, in the middle of that, there was the line. There was Paul's happy dance. Did you catch it in verse 8? He says, "Now we live." Wasn't Paul alive? Of course he was alive. Wasn't he living in Jesus? Of course he was living in Jesus. And yet he says, now we really live. Now we sing. Now we dance our happy dance. If you are, and the if is a first class conditional, so read that as, since you are standing fast in your faith. Paul is saying, yes, yes, yes. He is thrilled. He is excited. Hearing of. The bearing of the fruit that their faith has continued in the midst of Satan's opposition. Have you ever thought how frustrated Satan must be? Every time he tries to foil God's plans. And the best example of this is at the cross itself where Satan says on that Friday afternoon we've finally done it. We've finally got." it got him. The one who was to be God's king, we have got the nation to reject. And they hung him on a cross and he's dead. But that was Friday. Sunday's coming. And on Sunday, he rises from the dead. And having tasted death for everyone, having endured, he has now, Satan himself in his scheme has become the means by whom God, in the death of his son, has provided eternal redemption to anyone who will believe. And yes, his kingdom is coming. Satan has got to be the most frustrated in all his plans and all of his schemes there in Thessalonica. And they are standing firm in their faith. Not only around them, but far from them. Others are hearing. You know, as Timothy is on his way to Thessalonica, he's passing people going the other direction. You know what they're saying? Hey, have you heard about what's going on in Thessalonica? Man, there is this, there, there, there are people that are continuing and growing in number these followers of Jesus, and they're telling everybody. In fact, Paul may or Timothy may have passed as he went to Thessalonica. Some Thessalonians coming the other way as they're looking to go other places and tell this good news of Jesus that Paul had delivered to them. Yes. As John says, I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in the truth. You know what John is doing there? John is expressing God's heart. God has no greater joy than to hear of his children walking in his truth, trusting him when the things immediately in their face would tell them to do the opposite. And yet we trust him. And God says, yes, you go, girl, you go, man. God's happy dance is Paul's happy dance. God's joy in us when we walk in the truth, not just knowing the truth, but walking in it, living in Jesus' life toward others around us. Let's consider this from another angle. um, Galatians chapter 2. It's a well-known verse. Kids have learned it in Awana. I am crucified with Christ. His death is my death. Nevertheless, I live. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ's life is in my life and this life which I now live in this weak flesh imperfectly with all of its troubles and weaknesses and aches and pains I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and that loved me and gave himself for me is now lived his life lived in my life as I love and give myself for others Christ lives in me and yet That's hard to say, isn't it? That's hard for us to claim for ourselves and say definitively, yes, Jesus' life is lived in my life. And yet that's exactly the joy that God wants us to have. That's where we'll find it. That's the joy that he intends for us. And yet that life of Christ in me collides with my own self-centered fallenness, doesn't it? I want for me. I do want a vacation. I do want a new car. And yet that collides with the giving of myself away for the sake of others that god has for me because that's where i'll know him that's where i will walk alongside him in his life we rationalize things away with but god wants me to be happy really i think one of the one of the men in the in the morning study described um sometime when somebody had kind of given them one of those um, uh, attention-getting statements, sort of just dropped them in their tracks. We say, you know, God's not really interested in your happiness. That's not God has so much more than your happiness in mind for you. God has so much more than you, yet. Yet we rationalize things. Well, God wants me to happy, be happy, and yet actually God wants us to have his joy. God wants to have his fullness of life and purpose that we were made for. God wants us in the way a psychologist, Abraham Maslow, put it, God wants us to self-actualize. God wants us to experience that highest purpose which we were made for. Let's 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 cover just a little bit of psychology, shall we? Won't that be fun this morning? Let's put Maslow's hierarchy of needs up here. Probably most of you have run across this at one time or another. It's uh, it's been popularized far and wide. Probably much farther than Maslow ever thought saw it going. But the theory is is basically this: that humans have multi levels of need, and you don't even begin to address the upper levels of need until the the um, the, the, the earlier levels or the lower levels, the more base foundational levels have been provided for. But I want to focus on what the needs are and what's at the top. But you don't get to the top if, if, you have, if your physiological needs of air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing are not met. If those needs are not met, you're not thinking about other things if if somebody has their arms around your neck and your 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 air to breathe is threatened you're no longer thinking about the new car right okay so we move up to safety needs if our basic immediate ph- physiological needs are met by our physical bodies then safety needs personal security that i'll be safe tomorrow also employment resources health property if those basic needs are met, then we, we are, are free to think of and we need, but we're now freed up to think about and to work towards the next level of needs of love and belonging, connection with others, family, friendship. If those needs are met, we start thinking about self-esteem. What do others think of me? What, what, where does honor come from? Status, recognition, Freedom. Those needs which now we're in a, a good life. I'm, I'm happy, I'm, I'm sensing some fulfillment, I'm, I'm experiencing a, 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 a good life. Things are well now. And that opens up the opportunity to say, but what is it all for? That self-actualization, that highest calling, that biggest purpose which God has for my life. I'm going to understand Maslow and psychology from a biblical framework that God made us. And so God has this highest, the, the peak of the triangle there, God has that for us. And God made us, God created humanity in his own image that we would be his regents, we would stand for God, and even our upright standing is part of this, that we would stand for God as those bearing his likeness to all the rest of creation, even the angels. Angels are not made in the image of God. We are. Okay, we can put Maslow away. Now, think about that for a minute. God has made you to be a bearer of his image. What does that look like? Say, God is spirit, and yet God showed himself. The exact likeness, the image of God is seen in Jesus Christ. We step into God's highest purpose for us. We step into that greatest fulfillment, that self-actualization, even if doing so puts some of those other needs at risk. This is where Maslow had it wrong. You see, in self-actualization, or maybe Maslow didn't have it wrong, I'm not an expert on Maslow, but self-actualization in godly terms, in biblical terms, of me living that life of Christ who is in me by the power of His Spirit, changing me from glory to glory into the same image, the same likeness, that others would see something of Christ in me, in you, as God's representatives to the rest of His creation those made in his image to stand for God, that the rest of creation could know and experience something of God through you. That's what you were made for. And to, to bear that faith in God, your Father, even as Jesus in the face of the cross could trust himself into God, the hands of God his Father who always does right and good. And he could trust himself there. And these Thessalonians could trust themselves there in the middle of opposition against them in their faith because they dared to name the name of Jesus. That brought joy to Paul's heart because it brought joy. God's heart, that they would really willingly put themselves at risk to make Jesus further known to others. And in doing so, they step into God's joy for them. They step into and live out God's life. There's a deficient Christianity today that's popular. It emphasizes what will God do for you? That You'll find your joy in his blessings and how he will change your circumstances. He will give you health. Maybe he will give you wealth. But that's not God's joy. That is not the joy that was seen in the life of Christ as he gave himself away for us, even as we celebrate at this table this morning. Comfort and prosperity are not Paul's joy. His joy is despite distress, despite affliction, rejoicing in their spiritual progress. That they are denying themselves, taking up their cross, and following Jesus. What does that lead to? It leads to God working in us, as it describes in verse 9. What thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God, that you are experiencing this, that God is in your midst, that you are knowing him, and he is using you, and you are showing him to the region round, Paul says, what can I say? How could I possibly give thanks enough in light of what God is doing among you? You see, God uses godly examples. God used Paul in their midst. God used Timothy in their midst. God has used other people in your lives and so he will use you in the lives of others. Last week we had a, we had a church family meeting talking about building in the, from the past, building buildings needed in the future. And one of our... One of our elders, he's the chair of our deacon board, Tyler Stout. Tyler didn't know I was going to say this, and now he's listening very carefully. But Tyler described his family's participation in this church across generations. He talked about his grandparents, and I knew of some of their contributions here. But he talked about his great-grandparents. He stretched back 70 years in the past of things that his family got to be involved in. And then he turned that around and looked, what about 70 years in the future as well? See, God uses examples like that for the blessings that we have experienced today. And God would use those examples to encourage us to step forward and to be the same for others. The central point of this paragraph is this. We find God's joy not in our own advance. We find God's joy not in our betterment or comfort. We find God's greatest joy in the spiritual prospering of others. And as we give ourselves, give ourselves for the spiritual good and prospering of others, there's where we will know God's joy in Christ for us. What do we do from there? If that's the central point, what do we move from there? Do we just say, yes, that's great. Look what God has done. Now we move on. Celebrating the win, what do we do next? Well, if that is God's joy, if that's where we find God's joy, then how do we pursue more joy? How do we continue to live in that? And now I want to turn your attention to verses 11 to 13. Now then, may God, in light of what Paul has seen and described and celebrated with them, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. May you abound in love all the more, he says. We're not done yet. There is more to come. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Paul looks at Thessalonica today. Paul looks at that church at that time. And Paul looks down the corridor of history for them into the future when Jesus himself returns. And God wants to encourage them to press on all the more into God's future. There is more to do. There is more joy to be had and lived in and experienced for the sake of others. The goal The goal is our presence with the Lord. The goal is blameless in holiness unto that day. Living toward Jesus' coming and his kingdom in blameless holiness today. Now holiness is, is being different. Being godly different. Being different in God's ways. Being that unique, different, called out for a special purpose people. That's what holy means. And yet we will live out our holiness blamelessly. We will live godly before others without being a jerk about it. Okay? Living godly for others, living out Christ-likeness, living out our faith and our confidence in Jesus and wanting other people to share in that and yet not being a jerk about it. This this blamelessness toward others in in terms of holiness is going to be fleshed out for us more in chapter 4. He's going to give some specifics. What does our holiness look like in daily life in being blameless before others? The others don't find fault with us, uh, a charge against us that could be used against the gospel. We will live new. We will live differently. But what about when men call evil good and good evil? When good is cast aside and evil advanced, they may call you intolerant. But don't be intolerant. They may call you a hater, but don't hate others. He has called us to love. We hold to a godly morality ourselves, but we don't expect the world around us to do the same. We don't expect pagans who do not believe in the Bible nor Jesus to live as if they were Christians. Again, one of the, one of the bits of wisdom I heard from the men in, my, in, in our Monday morning study He said, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. You okay with that so far? Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus came to bring dead people life. That's why he came. He came to give us life, to restore us into relationship with God, that by God's Spirit in us we would live that life that we were created for in relationship and harmony with God and his mind and his purposes for his creation. So we hold ourselves to a morality, but we don't expect others who don't have that life to live as if they did. We look for opportunities to give life in Jesus, not to give morality for Moses. Does that make sense? We look for opportunities in the world around us to give God's life in Jesus, not to pass along a morality for Moses. That will not help them. It will only condemn them. But... We live in an age and in a culture where oftentimes evil is called good and good is called evil. Let me give an example. Many of the school districts now are wrestling with what are they going to do and they're beginning to have school board meetings about the new sex education curriculum that has come down from efforts in the State Department of Education that these are the things that schools must teach at various grade levels and they are awful. And what do we do about that? Well, there are Christians that are going to sound the battle cry and they're going to show up in force and they're going to yell and holler and kick up dust and it probably will not help them. Those things will still come. They will talk about, we don't like this and we don't like that and the Bible says this and they don't care. They don't care what you like. They don't care what the Bible says. Why would they? It's an old, old book that they do not believe Now, if it is the word of the living God, that changes everything. But they don't know that nor believe that. It has seemingly no authority over them. We can quote the Bible if we want to. We can insist on what we like and don't like if we want to. But what if instead, what if instead... Being salt and light in our community, we don't want to stand by. We don't want to withdraw. We want to share our concerns, and we have them, those concerns. But when you do, it should, be, it should not be from a perspective of what I don't like, what I don't agree with. Instead, it's expecting. We, we want to share our concerns, look for ways That these things that are proposed are going to be harmful and dangerous to the children in our community. That I care for what is good for the children in our community. I care for what is good for our community as a whole now and in the future. And there's things here that are going to be harmful. Why is it? Ask questions. Why is it do you think this is going to be good and helpful? How do you know that this will not lead to more and more of this kind of behavior And, and... But my concern, my stance, and think this through for yourself, so you're not parroting Bob, but you're thinking about this for yourself as you engage with other people, but is your stance about what you don't like and don't agree with, or is your stance what is good for people? What is good for children in this community, in this school? What is good for our community as a whole? What's going to help families to flourish and prosper? And along those lines, Parents and grandparents, you need to be aware of what's going on around you because you need to protect your children, you need to educate your children, you need to shine the light of God's truth into these corners because they're being told other things at an earlier and earlier age. Let me give you another example what this looks like in the midst of the world. We are very concerned today about a new and spreading virus. The novel coronavirus, the new one, COVID-19. The first death across the U.S. occurred right here in Washington State. There are new cases popping up all the time. This is going to be in our news for a while. We're going to hear more and more. There's going to be scarier things occurring probably before it gets better. It will. I don't know but it will probably spread more before it begins to decline or decrease. That's probably what's ahead of us. And it won't be just people who travel to China or here or there. It's going to more and more be popping up because the virus seems to spread to somebody who's asymptomatic themselves and yet can still pass it on to somebody else and you had no idea that that person was a carrier of the virus until it's too late. What are we going to do with that? We need to start start being safe. We need to withdraw. We need to hide ourselves. We need to stay out of public. We need to stay away from people. Certainly we need to stay away from sick people because sick people are dangerous. They might make me sick. Well, if we took that approach to the gospel generally, we would be of no use in the gospel at all. But what about of use in our society? In the early 300s A.D., the Roman city of Caesarea, which is in Israel, it's Israel's main, was Israel's main Roman port in the north of Israel on the Mediterranean Sea at that time. And Caesarea was built by Herod the Great, it was the capital of the Roman governors of the, of the region, and uh, when there was a Roman persecution, and probably the worst of all the Roman Empire persecutions was the last one that was occurring in the early years of 300 A.D., And yet, just around the same time, there was a famine in the land. There was not enough food. Just around the same time, there was a drought. The days of Elijah contributed to the famine. Not Elijah, that was earlier, but the same kind of thing. So there's not enough rain, there's not enough water, there's not enough food, and then came a plague. It almost sounded like Moses in Egypt all over again. And maybe the Christians could have been, yeah, see, Look what God's doing to you people now. Look what's happening in the heart of your little Roman headquarters here. See, you can kill us, but look what God's going to do to you. That could have been their stance, and it was not. In fact, the Roman historians for the next couple hundred years were were wondering and trying to figure out what was it about these Christians that following this severe persecution, they continued within the city as everybody else fleed. It was the Christians that remained in the city and cared for those who were afflicted cared for those who were sick cared for those even who were dying put themselves in danger of the same plague and died themselves in order to care for those in need and even in their need and urgency to tell them about the one who gives eternal life. Those were the Christians in Caesarea in early 300 A.D., and the world talked about it for the next couple hundred years, and we're still talking about it and marveling at it. Now, COVID-19 is nothing like that plague in Caesarea. But it's our opportunity to say, what will we do? Certainly some, those who are, those who are, are uh, most in danger, elderly, those who are, are immunocompromised, those who uh, th- this seems to like the like the common flu, it hits hardest those who are elderly, have respiratory issues, or those who are young. So some people need to be very careful, need to protect themselves and their family. But some of us need to be willing to put ourselves in harm's danger, harm's way. Some of us need to be willing to put ourselves in a place where we could be infected. We're going to wash our hands a lot. We're going to try to protect ourselves and take precautions, and yet some of us need to at this time, as this increases, when people are all the more in fear, isolating themselves, we need to be the ones to step forward and say, how can I help? What could I do? It might be volunteering in hospitals and clinics. It might be going and bringing groceries for somebody in your neighborhood that is self-quarantined because they're having symptoms. And you're not going to shun them like Christians did in the past and when HIV was running rampant because if we touch somebody with HIV, we might get it too. And It was not a good hour for the church. What are we afraid of? Dying? I hope not. I'm I'm much more afraid of not living. That's what I'm afraid of, folks. Rather than dying, I'm much more afraid of not living the life in Christ that I was made for, that I was born again for. Paul says, now, now we live. If you stand fast and walk in, live out the truth of the gospel that you were born for. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that our hope is in you. That our joy is in you. That though nothing else can satisfy, Father, thank you that you do. Lord, cause us to be willing to give ourselves away however that might look, whatever that might mean, in ways that are good for the people around us, in ways that seek the prosperity of this city in which we find ourselves, in ways that we would pay a price ourselves. We would put ourselves at risk. We would put ourselves at some cost in order to care for and serve and show the love of Christ and represent the image of God as seen in Jesus in this creation where you have stood us up, caused us to stand in for your glory. Lord, Use us in this moment, in this future, for your glory in the lives of others, that they would know life in Christ as we. We pray that in Jesus' name. Father, now as we receive this morning's offering, the prayer requests that are shared, the celebrations of praise to you that are shared as well, as we give of ourselves for your ministry in this community, Father, would you use it and bless it As we give something of ourselves away, Father, make that matter for others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.